0: Our reading this morning is taken from the first book of Samuel and reading chapter 24, commencing at the first verse. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of El Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild gates. He came to the sheep pens along the way, A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, look at his piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, and so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the King of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, doesn't he, doesn't, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants... Or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen.
1: Thanks for bringing us the reading Alan. And good morning everybody. Good to see you. I want to know how you feel about what you've just heard. I legitimately want to know. Do you hear that story? How do you feel? So let me give you a moment just to chat with your neighbour. It's just going to be a second. First feelings that come to mind after you hear a story like that. If you at home, you can tweet it or something. Do whatever you do at home. Uh, take a moment. How do you feel about it? Now remember, don't be worried about this because feelings, feelings are like kids. You can't let them drive the car, but you can't lock them in the boot and forget about them. So you're safe to so acknowledge your feelings. are not going to control anyone. No one's going to come down on you. Um, but we should acknowledge them, so have a chat with your neighbour, how do you feel? Alright, so just thinking uh, some initial feelings, that should be enough time, let's let them out of the boot. Over this area, anyone want to call out? Just just a feeling you had as you heard that story. What would you feel? Let's see he'll be brave and uh, break the seal on this. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Loyal. Any other feelings over here? Inconsistent. Uh, anyone over here? What would you feel? Respect. Merciful. Merciful. Thank you. Any other feelings? Okay, maybe I'll share my feelings. I read this story and you know how I feel? Frustrated. I've been living with 20 years of frustration because it's been about 20 years since the first time I read this story. I feel frustrated. I'm not going to let it drive the car, but I'm going to let it out of the boot. I feel frustrated at how this story is advancing because I've been reading a story in 1 Samuel of God leading his people. I've been reading a story where God said through Samuel to Saul, not you anymore. I'm tearing the kingdom away from you. I've picked someone else. I've been reading a story where God through Samuel has anointed David. To be the king. I've been reading a story as you have today where King Saul has been on this murderous pursuit of David who has done nothing wrong, and now King Saul has assembled 3,000 fighting men and has come against David who has 600 desperados with him. They're in the back of a cave and under the Lord's hand now comes the moment where things could change, where these 3,000 are outside. Saul's got his pants down going to the loo and there is a chance for David to snatch the kingdom either in one moment of violence or at least by taking this guy hostage or something. The story ends for me with David still not king, Saul still king. And that's not the trajectory of this story. That's not how things are meant to be. That's not the results that we are positioned to desire. The result we're positioned to desire is Saul's meant to resign. Saul's meant to stop being leader. David's meant to start being leader. And this was the moment and it didn't happen. That frustrates me, and I'm frustrated doubly that David, who as uh, some had said, had been merciful, extremely kind and merciful, and if you can't see that, you haven't seen how kingships are established over history, you haven't seen friendships break down over smaller things than this. David's been extremely merciful with 600 guys in a dark cave saying, the guy who wants to kill you would hunt you like a dog. You can end that right now. David's gone, I'm not taking him. I'm not even going to use him as a negotiating piece. I'm not taking him. It's amazing mercy. That's amazing loyalty. And they don't make up in the end. What happens in the end of this passage is David's gone, he treated me really well. And then David goes home, life goes on, Uh, sorry, Saul goes home, life goes on, and David and his men go to a stronghold because they're not actually safe yet. The relationship's not resolved. Despite the, the language that Saul has used, this is one of those is Saul amongst the prophet moments where you're like, you get it, but you don't get it. They're not resolved in their relationship and we will see in weeks to come as the book unfolds, David is certainly not safe from Saul, the conflict's not over despite the language. So I'm frustrated, forgive me for my frustration, better join me in my frustration because this is an unresolved moment in a story that's calling for closure and the closure's not there. It's frustrating because the thing that should happen hasn't happened and the relationship hasn't resolved itself. And it reminds me, and I'll ask you to permit me a little bit of liberty as I step out of the passage for a while. It reminds me of some excellent counsel I read in a book by Christian psychologist Dr. Henry Cloud. The book's called Integrity and it's about having an integrated character that is that all parts of you are aligned together. One of the things that Dr. Cloud talks about is that in life, as if you've ever been on a boat or observed a boat, what happens behind the boat? The water's disturbed, isn't it? We call it a wake. And as a boat moves through water and it leaves a wake, it leaves a wake on both sides, doesn't it? You'll see the water will flow out that side and the water will flow out on that side. There's a wake on both sides. And Cloud argues quite rightly, and I'll show you from the passage just a moment, That as we move through life with one another and make decisions and do things and particularly lead, we leave a wake behind us. On one side of our wake are results, the things we're meant to achieve, the things we're meant to get done, the objectives we set our mind to. On the other side of our wake are relationships, the people we touch, how we touch them, how we bond together, how we divide apart. And the thing that Cloud says that's really important for us as integrated humans is that you've got to be attentive to both sides of the wake. You, you know, it's possible to achieve all the things you meant to achieve and there's just significant relational collateral damage over there. Just the, the body count is too large. And it's possible to be mates with everybody and irresponsible. Not achieving, not doing what you might have been positioned to do or called to do. And Klaus says you've got to do both. And it's hard. It's hard to be attentive to both. What's amazing to my mind in this passage and beyond is thus far in his life, David Has been attentive to both. Now, let me be clear. It's not our space to come and worship the man David. No, this passage is ultimately about God, as all passages are about, and our worship goes to him. But there's a man here who teaches us significant lessons and offers us a beautiful picture of being attentive to both sides of his wake. Consider his results. This is a man who God has positioned by the anointing of the prophet Samuel to be the Christ of the time, the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one of the time. What does that person do? Well, that person's role, you might think, oh, it's to be king. Yes, it's to be leader. And what they will do is they will mediate the blessings of God onto the world, and they will mediate the curses or the condemnation of God upon the world. If you want to study that, read Psalm 2. It's a helpful case study. That's what they do. Well, how's David been going with achieving the results? I would argue really, really well. This is a guy, God is against the Philistines. God has brought condemnation upon The the Philistines, who are a tribe of the people of the Canaanites. And God has brought Israel, not just because he's got a crush on Israel, but he's saying, I'm using you as my hand of condemnation against these people. And so what should their leader do? Lead the driving out and the condemnation of the Philistines. Well, famously, David did that with Goliath, their great champion, and that was just a sign of things to come, because it wasn't just Goliath. David has served in the army of Israel, an army that Saul would see as his own. But it wasn't Saul's army, it's God's army. David's been working hard, risking his life. They even write songs about him. David has slain his tens of thousands. He has brought the condemnation of God, as he should be doing. David, in just the previous chapter, has saved the town of Keilah against the Philistines. He's brought not just condemnation to God's enemies, but he is doing the other side. He's bringing blessing to people as well. So he's brought a blessing to Keilah. He's bringing blessing through his allegiances as well. Jonathan, the son of Saul, says, David, please don't ever cut off my house. May we be blessed in you. Yes, you will. They hug, they kiss, they have an allegiance with one another. David's bringing God's blessing. David in the previous chapter has brought blessing to the priests of God and brought protection where Saul and his men are murdering them. David, beautifully, one Samuel describes as the one who the six hundred people he's in the cave with—they're the desperados of the time. These people lost their jobs; they've messed up. Maybe they got ancient drug problems—who knows? But they're desperados. Life has fallen apart somehow they decided to flock to David. They seem to find new purpose. They seem to find new direction. They seem to find some kind of wholeness. He's bringing the blessing of God to all who come and shelter with the Messiah. Strong biblical themes that will play out, particularly in the prophet Isaiah, later in the Bible. David is achieving results. That side of the wake is great. And in this passage, 1 Samuel 24 is verse 10 will show us, and it should be on the screen for you now. David, who has crept forward and has cut the edge of Saul's garments, says these words. This day you have seen. Can we back up one, please? This day you have seen with your own eyes. He's talking to Saul. How the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. He's saying, look, can you not see? Have you not read the scoreboard? God's giving me the results and this kingdom will be mine. Now some urged me to kill you. Some urged me to score the winning goal. But I I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Understand a beautiful transition here in attentiveness to wake that Saul, uh, David, is saying, I, under God, have been very attentive to the results and the results are coming. God is giving this kingdom to me. Now, I've mentioned to you before, and others have as well, how important clothing is in the book of 1 Samuel. There's been times where uh, Jonathan gave gave, uh, David his royal cloak, Pledge of Allegiance, Saul tried to make David his soldier by giving his, him his armor. Saul grabbed at Samuel's robe and ripped it. And Samuel said, "Ah, this is, this is good. This is how God is ripping the kingdom from you. And now David, though he does it with a stricken conscience, actually shows a reality. The kingdom is coming to me but he's grief-stricken that he should reach out his hand and do it. He might have overstepped. He's been attentive to the results. But I want you to see in this verse, he's also attentive to relationship. He's he's relationally attentive and to the other side of his wake in saying, wait a minute. I can't do this because you're the Lord's anointed. That's not right. What, What relationship is he being attentive to? Well, firstly, his relationship to God. God sets the pace. God anoints his leader. God controls his situation. And for me, called to follow, I go at God's pace. And if, he, if you are his anointed, then I must honour that because I honour God. Now, let me say what this might mean and what this might not not mean, but maybe have confusingly have been taught. Sometimes this passage has been used as an explanation of how our relationships in church work and that is true. But what I'd say is a potential half-truth is at times this has been used as a passage to explain relationships between uh, members of church and church leadership. Don't stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, I don't want to take away from some of the things, which is difficult for me to say as a leader, but they are scriptural. I don't want to take away from some of those passages that speak of obedience and submission and all of those things. They are real. They are for all our benefit. This passage is probably best not used in this space. Sometimes folks have said, yeah, don't touch the Lord's anointed, as if those who occupy some kind of a leadership role, be it on a platform or in a life group or whatever, are somehow the anointed. The truth is, the application is broader. Consider this is David speaking to Saul. This is more of a peer-to-peer situation, for both have been anointed, though Saul's anointing has been taken away. For David, it's like, you're anointed, I'm anointed, I'm not putting my hand out against the Lord's anointed. What does it mean for us? Well, if you call yourself Christian, which means little Christ, then you are of the anointed, So the application is much broader for us. This speaks to how we might all treat one another. Not just how we might treat someone in an office, it it speaks to how we might all treat those whom God has anointed with his Holy Spirit, those who call Jesus Lord. Lord. And so it's much broader, isn't it? This is this is how we're going to deal with one another, and so there'll be some implications to come from that. But right now, for sort for David, he says, "My relationship with God means I treat you in a certain way, and my relationship with you, as the Lord's anointed, as my peer, as my other, is something that I will be attentive to." Do you see? David's not just attentive to the result side of his wake; his relationship side of the wake. This is the guy who some of you said, Oh, I feel loyalty when I read this passage. Good feeling. Because David... I'm going to be messing up my Davids and my Sauls today, forgive me. David has been so amazingly loyal to Saul the whole time. He's been very attentive to that relationship. David has been attentive beautifully to the relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Tell me you wouldn't feel orkies in that relationship. But David's been invested in it. David has continued to act righteously. And have a look at this in 1 Samuel 24, 17 to 18. Even Saul must acknowledge. Saul to David, you are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. The results were there for the taking. But you valued me. You saw me. You prized me. You protected me. You cared about me you wanted both sides, you wanted this relationship that we have, and you even came out into the light in front of my 3,000 men to tell me all about it. I hope you will see with me that David has been attentive to both sides of his wake, the results and the relationship. And if you will see that with me, I hope you will feel with me intense frustration That despite his best efforts, despite amazing capacity to be attentive to both sides of the wake, results and relationships, the problems are still not resolved. I haven't prepared it for the screen for you, but I'll read to you from verse 22. At the end of this episode, so David gave his oath to Saul that he won't rub him out, that he'll look after his, his future inheritance. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is not resolution. Oh my gosh, this is so frustrating to me when David has been attentive to the result, but he's still not king. I want the credits to roll on this movie with David stepping in and putting on a crown and that sort of thing. At the same time, why is David going to a stronghold? So he'll be safe. Because despite everything Saul has said, there's no safety here. The result's not there. The relationship's not properly healed either. What do I want to see? What I would love to see is Saul, to finish what he was saying in the verses I just read to you, and then say, David, I don't even know where to begin to start with my apology. I told everyone you were my enemy. I told everyone you were out to kill me. I told, uh, uh, and I, I put a, a death penalty on your head. I have acted like an absolute jerk, and I don't even know where to begin. I'm the older guy. I should have known better. Please, David, will you forgive me? Hand outstretched, it's like, look, I'll help. I'll, I'll get my people to move my stuff out of you know, the residents and you come in and, you know, we'll put your picture up, take mine, I've done everything wrong. And, you know, along the way I have learnt some stuff so I wonder if maybe you'd have me as an advisor or something like that. I want to serve you in the way you've served me. I messed this thing up. God said it's it's about you leading, not me anymore. All these things that should be put right in this relationship are not put right. Saul goes home. David is still the wandering king and he's not a safe king and you'll see that in the chapters to come. I'm frustrated that the problems are not resolved. Well Shane and everyone who comes with me welcome to real life. You see this is true for all of us isn't it? I think Cloud is right when he says as we move through life we leave a wake and there's results and there's relationships. And the truth be told, I don't know if it's nature or nurture or whatever, but all of us tend to be naturally bent more towards one side of the wake than the other. When push comes to shove, you think more about one side than the other and it's frustrating to think of both. I confess to you, I'm a results guy that's who I am. I know for some of you, uh, you're like, whoa, our pastor's a results guy. Yeah, I am. And it doesn't make me less Christian than you. And the people who are also like me, it doesn't make them less Christian than you. It makes them wide in a particular way, in an important way. I'm a results guy. I've got to tell you, it's a strength and a limitation. But if I can see the result in front of me, the goal, it's like blood in the water. I'm like a shark, I like, sniff the blood in the water and I'm going to go. And to, to, to my discredit, sometimes there has been a body count. Sometimes I've damaged myself. And some of you resonate with that. So here's what I would say to me and I would say to you. If you are one of those really naturally attentive to the results side of your wake, my advice to you, always be ready to take a knife to a gunfight. Now, I know some of you think I just said it backwards because, like, never take a knife to a gunfight. Always take a knife to a gunfight. You and I are wired to get the end result. And sometimes we don't see the damage that we wreak to the relationships because we lock on, missile lock, beep, 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 beep. beep, beep. I have the bogey. <sighs> take a knife to the gunfight. What does that mean? It means intentionally limit yourself. Intentionally put yourself in a space of danger. Intentionally limit your arsenal and and knowing, as you would taking a knife to a gunfight, I'm probably going to sustain more damage today. This is going to mess me up real bad, but I'm going to front up. Take a knife to a gunfight, limit yourself in that way. What am I saying? Prize something higher in the space than the, than the results. You're, you're so wired on results, I'm so wired on results, I won't get forgotten. So go in pricing something higher. A wonderful example I saw of this was some years ago now, and I'm sorry to tell you about things I can't show you. It was on that show Q&A. A q and a which at times has become like a, a gladiator ring where you watch Christians get slaughtered. And so our former Archbishop, uh, Reverend Dr. Peter Jensen, was on the show, and it was about the time where Australia was debating uh, marriage for homosexuals. And Peter Jensen was on the show, and they pitted him against some people who knew some stuff and a comedian. The comedian's job was basically just to try and make uh, Dr. Jensen look stupid. It was interesting... Because Dr. Jensen is an exceptional debater, very sharp-witted, very informed about all of the things to be informed about. This is a guy who has weapons of mass destruction, came to a gunfight and brought a stick. Because all he did on that show that night, as people insulted him, as people put forward silly things... He was just very kind. He just consistently was kind, kind, kind. He didn't compromise truth, but he was just kind and gentle. And if you ever watch Q&A, there's the the ribbon down the bottom where the tweets come in. The tweets were all starting to come in. I don't agree with Dr. Jensen, but you have to admire his integrity. You have to admire his kindness. You have to, you have to, you have to... He was investing very hard, as a guy who knows how to get results, he was investing very hard in relationship. He took a knife to the gunfight. I'd love to tell you what happened in a few weeks later when another apologist came on and took a gun. To the gu- and it was great, it was time for the guns. But um, what Dr Jensen did that night was really special. If you're like me and you naturally sniff the blood in the water and you're ready to go for results, just limit yourself, and there's a ton of ways that you can brainstorm with yourself and your friends. But how to be gentle to the relationship because you prize it really high. It's an intentional step. Now, some of us aren't wired that way. Some of you are still recovering from your past saying, I smell blood in the water sometimes, and I'll go for it, and I've got a body count. I've got red in my ledger. I do. Some of you are very relationally driven and if push comes to shove, you're like, well, no, no, the relationship at all costs and I think in our society today, this is becoming a very strong thing. Here's what I'd say to you. These guys, take a knife to a gunfight. You guys, sometimes you've got to creep out from the back of the cave. Sometimes you've got to creep out from the back of the cave and you've got to stand for what you've got to stand for. But further than that, Sometimes you've got to creep out from the back of the cave. You want to stay in the back of the cave where you're with your friends, it's comfortable, it's nice, and let's not have blood on the floor. Sometimes you've got to creep out from the back of the cave and when you get there, keep creeping, keep walking like David. Conscious, grieved that he'd done what he did. He then stood up and he walked out into the light and said, With attentiveness to the relationship, but attentiveness to the results, here's what I stand for. Here's where it's at. Can you imagine the danger? You're like, that's too dangerous. Staying in the back with 600 was a safe bet. Creeping out in the dark was crazy dangerous, but with a really, really great carrot. He could have given it to Saul right there, game over. When he walked out into the light in front of 3,000 men who had been commissioned to kill him, and say, God's doing this, I stand for this, the relationship matters, but no, this is happening, he was brave. He was committed to both sides of the wake. Sometimes you need to creep out from the back of the cave to the front of the cave, out into the light, and be willing to contend and not be liked. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for that's how they spoke of the false prophets in their father's time. Be prepared to not be liked, to lose a friend. You know, we live in a time where the worst thing you can do to someone is allegedly offend them rather than they take responsibility for taking offense or present things that are challenging. But I want you to know that that I'm seeing in my lifetime how true it is what wise men have said, that one generation asserts, the next generation assumes, and then the next generation rejects. We must be a people who are attentive to both sides of the wake. You can see my results side coming out, can't you? I hear it in my tone. and I'm sorry. But we've got to be a people who are attentive. If you're relationally driven... Sometimes you got to creep out from the back of the cave. And you know what will happen? You'll get frustrated again! Because when you're result's driven and you take a knife to the gunfight, sometimes it doesn't get fixed, at least not today. And sometimes when you're relationally driven and you creep out from the back of the cave and you go into the light, people hate your guts and you lose a friend. Or people won't come to your church. Or this and that and other relational and heartbreaking stuff happens. And you probably still don't get the result. And you go, what was even the point of that? This was exhausting. That's exhausting. Doing both is exhausting. And we're not getting closure. How do I find the strength to press into this and to move forward? And here's where called to follow makes a difference. Verse 15. David says, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering. What is David's statement? He says, I'm attentive to both sides of the wake, but at the end of the day, it's going to take God to put me on the throne, (laughs) and it's only going to be a work of God for us to be mates again. God will have to do this. And if I lose you as a friend, but I'm right before God, then I'm okay with that. I follow him. I'm called to follow. May the Lord vindicate. And in the space of huge frustration where you're like, I didn't get the thing I really care for. I didn't get the other thing I really care for. I, 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 this just didn't work out. Entrusting yourself to the Lord is where it's at. And this is exactly what Jesus did. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. One of my favorite parts of scripture. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now when you know you're meant to be king of the Jews, when you know you're Lord of Lords, when you remember... Just a little while ago, you calmed the storm, turned water into wine, made sick people healthy, did all these things. And yet they're nailing you to a cross. You're like, this isn't the result. This isn't what we're after. But Jesus took a knife to that gunfight and entrusted himself to his Father, who by the power of his Holy Spirit would raise him from the grave with the definitive sign that calls, calls Jesus Christ Eternal. When you've done nothing wrong, when you've only spoken the truth, when even the people who don't follow you 2,000 years later call you a good moral teacher, when you've acted according to that morality, when you've always kept your word, and people have lied about you and convicted you in a kangaroo court, and now they're putting you to death and calling you names, surely a comeback is appropriate. But Jesus, invested in the relationships, says, no, no. When I die and God accepts me as a sacrifice and I'm risen from the grave, he will be the one who through my death and resurrection will bring relational reconciliation between sinners and the righteous one. God will get it done. Gee, it must have been hard for Jesus and for David and for you. To throttle back sometimes. Be attentive to both sides of the wake. The only way I know to do it, the way I'm striving to do it, is the way I've seen David do it and the way Jesus did it most perfectly. To entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, sometimes you feel it's all up to you. To make it all work, to bring closure... And being attentive to both sides of the weight can be extremely tricky. My counsel to you from these scriptures, and I hope you're okay with the, uh, the liberty I've taken with the passage, is to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, to answer his call to follow, to go at his pace, and allow him to bring the closure. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus We thank you, though, in very nature, God. He emptied himself of that glory to come to earth. And as he died his death, he entrusted himself to you, the one who judges justly. Attentive to results, attentive to relationship, but attentive to your call and your pace. He relied upon you to bring that final closure. He relied upon you to bring the pace and the speed. Father God, we thank you for David, not God, but a man, but a man who knew what it was to trust in you and to follow. Father, we wrestle with this stuff. It's hard sometimes when you want the result to remember the relationship, and it's hard when you value the relationship to turn your back on the result. And Father, it's hard when neither one of them advance as your focus is split. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would conform us to the likeness of Christ to help us to be people who entrust ourselves to you, the one who judges justly, the one who vindicates, and the one who brings closure. May we walk at your pace and may we finish when you say the race is done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.